0: BFBS
1: Radio
2: 2.
0: Radio 2. Radio 2.
2: Radio 2. Sitrep with Christopher Lee. turn Turner there and the BFBS News Team. Thank you very much. Hello, this is Christopher Lee. And you, you are very welcome at the Sit Rep roundtable on a sunny, bit blowy, but sunny and warm day in London town. In the next hour, Kyrgyzstan, why the killing is in our region of interest. Afghanistan... Another lost cause, or the war that never was. Obama proving no one can win three wars at once. Iraq, why the Iranians say bombing's easier than war. <laughs> Pakistan, why the intelligence people say Taliban's the best bet to avoid war. Karachi, why banning demos won't keep the bombers out. Bloody Sunday, the ones that got away from it all. Bloody Sunday again, exit stage right. Forty commander doing the talking, but is anyone listening in the police training unit. The Royal Navy, Maritime Ops, and the future of the Andrew. But the Trident value for review, value for money review. Will it be value for money? Military welfare, getting it together, or is it too late? NATO, does it really need Montenegro? Selly Oak, making way for Queen Elizabeth. And wounds or injuries, what's in a word that frightens the BBC? <sighs> We're all going to do it in the next hour. At the Sitrep round roundtable, the director of the Centre for Defence and Security Studies at the University of Salford, Professor Eric Grove, Royal Marine Major General Julian Thompson, and Michael Codner, the director of military studies at the Royal United Services Institute, and, of course, a former naval person. I want to start with Kyrgyzstan. I think many people have been watching, listening, wondering what's going on there, why it's going on with the Kyrgyz uh, forces and the uh, minority Uzbeks. Let me read you something. It's from a report. The Kyrgyz men broke into her courtyard. That's a woman called Zarifa. They broke into her courtyard and sat Zarifa down next to a cherry tree. They asked her a couple of questions. After confirming she was an ethnic Uzbek, they stripped her, raped her and cut off her fingers. After that, they killed her and her small son, throwing their bodies into the street. They then moved on to the next house, and the next house, and the next house. Now, that's the gruesome detail which those involved in warfare sadly understand that it's quite common. Eric Grove, why is the region there? Why is what's going on in Kyrgyzstan... Uzbekistan so important to us when
0: we think about Afghanistan. That's right because it's Afghanistan at large. This part of the world is very important and Uz- Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan etc. This whole area of what I suppose call it, Southern Asia, is very important to Western security because this could well become an area of increased Islamic fundamentalism. Pakistan, of course, is probably even more important than Afghanistan. So although we try, for our own understandable national reasons, to just zero in on Afghanistan, this whole area is a big, big problem. And what you've just read demonstrates how really ghastly is what can happen in these areas. Michael
3: it's also, uh, there are routes into Afghanistan which the Americans in particular use um, to support um, well, NATO and American activity in um, Afghanistan. And any counterinsurgency like Afghanistan, the borders are very, very important. Obviously, it's the Pakistani border at the moment, which is the important one. But the ethnic movements in the north um, aren't irrelevant to all of that
4: essential militarily, uh, Julian Thompson? Well, very essential, because, uh, as Michael said, it, it is the route the Americans are using to come into Afghanistan. Uh, it is part of the, the stands which surround, on, th- on two sides, Afghanistan. Uh, and the, the, it could be a, a source of terrorism, of al-Qaeda-type operations in the future. And, of course, the problem is that it lies between Russia and Afghanistan and
0: and who actually is in control there, question mark. And now the locals are saying, please bring the Russians back. Because the Russians provided us with stability in the past, so perhaps the Russians might provide us with Is there stability now. Want to back in there? Not, 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 not especially. But if the locals well, are it's saying it's cleaned up, but if the locals are saying please come in, it might be quite tempting.
2: And nobody else can go in because nobody else has got the manpower, the organisation, exactly. nor the will to go into it, Michael.
3: And if you look at the Russian record in Chechnya, um, Grozny, and the way they handle uh, this sort of situation, it's um, at that extreme end that's. Um, United Kingdom and other Western countries have, um, like have, have much moved much away way. from, however exactly. effective it may be in the short term.
0: And, but, but clearly, given what we've just heard about what the people are like there, the Russian approach, although I hate to say it, might be quite effective.
2: <laughs> right. Um, listen, I mean, it's been Afghanistan, hasn't it? Seven days, more British deaths, wounded, Prime Minister and Defence Secretary uh, into Kabul. First Sea Lord, Admiral Sir Mark set up, flew in on Tuesday. Getting U.S. and uh, briefing British briefings and seeing raw marines. I tell you something, William Hill shortening odds on him
4: as the next CDS, Julian. Well, that that surprises me. Surprises everybody. Uh, not, not because of him, but because of the under the counter lobbying that has been going on to put in a chapter in Karki, uh, on the basis that the army is doing all the fighting in Afghanistan, which isn't true. Actually, exactly. Which is yeah. not true. And I would like to see uh, the first seat, the present first sea lord go in as as CDS actually, because I I think he's probably got a a wider strategic view on events than the sort of stuff I hear coming out of Mod Army.
0: Exactly. And he's a very intelligent man as well. Very intelligent man. Yes. Was he a submariner? He was, yes. So was the last naval CDS. Uh, I suppose he was. Exactly. Mike Boyce. Mean, yes, I suppose he was. Yes, I know. Well, I'm, okay, he was, of course. <laughs> OK. Yes. Yes, I was trying one. to uh, add an extra word or two to make it yes, sound of better. Yes, of course. Listen,
2: um, I tell you what, it's been, uh, been oh, bombsome. Um, we had the Afghan uh, Taliban saying it has captured as many as 40 Pakistanese soldiers after attacking their checkpoint in a cross-border raid. Uh, Michael, the, I mean, the, the Taliban do hit. Uh, checkpoints they don't normally capture or go in and take uh, Pakistan
3: soldiers, do they? You wouldn't have thought that there was a um, huge advantage in doing that, um, bearing in mind they then have to do something with them, um, 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 unless there is some... Uh, I suppose there is the perception of that they are moving into that military phase which Mao said was the Mm. third phase of an insurgency once you've stopped war, when you've been doing the war amongst the peoples for so long and when you're beginning to win, you then go on to a military track with an objective like seize the capital or whatever it is. Mm. That would be the the logic, unless they would be useful in other ways like getting intelligence, etc.
2: Yeah, talk about intelligence, though we also had this week another School of Economics report that Pakistani intelligence is so deeply involved in the arming and funding of the Afghan Taliban that it holds a seat on the militant um, leadership council. Um, The report's author is Matt Waldman. Matt, why would the ISI, the Pakistani intelligence, support Afghan Taliban?
5: Well, I think it's largely due to the ongoing latent conflict um, with India. Uh, We've got to remember that since uh, 1947, there have been three major conflicts between India and Pakistan and a number of other clashes. And I think Pakistan is concerned about the very good relations between uh, the regime in in Kabul and Delhi. Um, They see... That Afghanistan is a, is in their eyes, um, a, a strategic depth on their western flank, um, and I, I, think that that probably explains uh, why they have been uh, conducting these activities.
2: Tell me the, um, the extensive re- support that people talk about. Um, what is it in practical terms?
5: What it? Sorry.
2: What in practical terms? What it, well, practical terms, what is, what is yes. the support they're getting?
5: well i mean i think it's the different different types of support i mean on the one hand you have sanctuaries so that fighters can very freely cross uh, the afghanistan pakistan border and of course when you look at insurgencies in the past it's very clear that those insurgents that have access to places where they can recuperate prepare uh, recover and Uh, to actually make plans for their operations inside uh, the country where the insurgency is happening, they tend to succeed or they have a much better chance of succeeding. Um, The support is also in terms of um, munitions, uh, according to the interviews that we we, uh, undertook, so munitions as well as uh, other supplies and finances. And in addition to that, I think there there seems to be, uh, again, as the interviewees say, and, and I spoke to many insurgent commanders, is that there is also this heavy influence in terms of the operations that are undertaken in the field and the strategic sort of decision-making at a higher level.
2: Tell me, I mean, far from me to say that some guy like you that's actually been there and got this information is being conned, you don't think they're trying to pull a fast one on you, do you, just to wind up the whole story of the uh, Pakistan intelligence in uh, people in interfering with, with with something they shouldn't be?
5: Well, I don't think that. Um, let, I mean, let me explain a little bit about the research. I conducted ten interviews with insurgents and they were all contacted and conducted separately. Um, so, there wasn't collusion um, between them to try to Uh, spin a certain story. In addition to that, I spoke to 10 former senior Taliban officials, including six ministers or deputy ministers and two ambassadors. In addition to that, I spoke to another 30 or so people, including a lot of um, senior political figures and analysts from Kandahar, um, as well as Western diplomats. Um, And the collective view, as it were, is reflected in my report. And, of course, there are differences uh, between individuals, but, but there seems to be a great deal of consensus about the role that Pakistan is playing. And, of course, we've got to remember that in the 1990s, Pakistan was perhaps the biggest backer of the Taliban regime. And it does seem uh, that the links between the two and the support has continued.
2: Tell me, Matt, where do you reckon this leaves... President Zadari of Pakistan, I mean, does he know about this or does it undermine his position or is it business as usual?
5: Well, we had it from a very credible source uh, that he uh, did indeed know about this and that he even met with uh, captive Taliban prisoners and assured them uh, of his support and that was reinforced by other individuals that we spoke to. Um, I don't find it particularly surprising. I mean, if you accept that one of the um, one of the points that was made uh, by a number of interviews is that this is the official policy of the ISI, the Pakistani Intelligence Service, uh, then it isn't surprising that senior political figures uh, are know about it and endorse it. Um, I think the real question here is, um, what is causing it? And I think we've got to to accept that it is that ongoing conflict and insecurity uh, with India. Um, And then we have to say, well, how can we start to address that? Because I think, really, the way to achieve genuine, constructive Pakistani cooperation with respect to the insurgency, is if they feel more secure about their borders and more secure, in in particular, in their relationship with India.
2: Matt Waldman, thank you very much for joining us. We're back to something else, aren't we, here? And this this idea that if you want to solve, if you can solve, um, Eric Grove, uh, (laughs) what's going on in Afghanistan then the key to it is what's going
0: on in Pakistan. It's Pakistan, and and from what we've just been hearing, quite clearly the the Zadari regime is playing both ends against the middle, the middle in a sense being the United States. They allow the Americans to operate covertly, drones out of bases in Pakistan. They support the Americans to a sufficient point that the Americans will not take action against them. But yet it would appear, perhaps right from the top, that the Pakistani intelligence services are conniving with their old friends, the Taliban. It's a pretty unstable, si- it's a pretty unstable situation. And I'm not quite sure how you solve it. And I'm, I think I, I disagree a little bit. Yes, oh, oh, okay, perhaps one might make the Pakistanis feel a bit more secure vis-a-vis the Indians. But you know, the, 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 there is a huge, huge governance problem ...in Pakistan, and solving that is going to be extremely difficult. Um, Julian, since 1947, this is roughly how business has been done
2: in
4: that region, isn't it? Yes, it, exactly that. And, and I see another angle to it, possibly, and it's maybe a bit far-fetched. In some respects, it is in the Taliban's interests for India to be able to put pressure on Pakistan... ...in the sense of, of, of perhaps even attacking them if they deem mm. that they are a, a, a threat in order that the extremists can get their hands on the levers of power, the, the classic sort of Mao situation of getting your hands on the levers of power once you have taken an insurgency just so far.
2: It's this, back to this idea, uh, Michael, that um, the general public in the United Kingdom see the United Kingdom get uh, forces getting involved in what most people see as a straightforward war, it's a, a it's a, a almost a punitive force, imperial war. We're going back to the old fighting grounds. Um, it is not like that. It wasn't like that in the first Afghan War, the second Afghan War in in the nineteenth century, and it won't be like that for ever lasting in this war, will it?
3: No, absolutely, and um, it, it has been quite important for the government to use the word war um, in its presentation of what we're doing in Afghanistan, certainly from the military's point of view. It is. Um, but uh, this um, particular issue is one that, I mean, there are some, some paradoxes there. The Chief of the General Staff of Pakistan was speaking at my institute's conference last week and talking about uh, the challenges they're facing with dealing with the Pakistani. Um, in inverted commas, Taliban, um, and um, their successes and failures. The issue of uh, um, ISI came up, and it was very much... um pushed into, oh, there may be some renegades who are motivated Mm. in certain ways. I mean, I would agree intuitively with Matt that it has got more to do with India than it has to do with um, fundamentalist members within the ISI, although you can't, of course, rule that out. But in any intelligence organisation of that sort, there are very uh, shady borderlines between the officials who run it and the the agents who are acting and long-term relationships are very important in this respect, going right back, as you said, to the 90s. I
0: think think there are people in the Pakistani armed forces, the army in particular, who quite honestly are fighting the Taliban as hard as they can. And it must be very, very depressing for them when reports like, like this come out because they are fighting a hard campaign and they seem to me to be reasonable Progressive in a Western sense, people who are trying to create a Pakistan which corresponds more or less with what Jinnah intended back in 1947. But the trouble is, there are a, n- a large number of people, particularly in the in the intelligence services, as Mike has explained, s- then so well, who just don't don't think in the same way, or even feel, or I should say, feel the same way. And, right. also,
4: and also, it's not mm-hmm. quite like thinking of MI6, where you, know, you stand to attention from time to time in in that in front of your boss in that funny building across the river, uh, the agents that they're running. You you sometimes wonder whose side they are, on. have you paid them enough, or is somebody else going to pay them? So it's it's a I mean, it's very, very much more woolly. It's exactly. not an I- ideological hang-up, is it? No, it's 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 a very just a, it's a very very foggy grey. Very messy indeed. Messy. Very and, messy.
3: and of course, um, Pakistan knows more about what the Taliban are doing for their own purposes if they're working. Through the intelligence community within the Taliban, as well as merely just. From Can somebody
2: explain something which we we, we always talk talked about the, uh, Pakistan Taliban as we were earlier, and then there's Afghanistan Taliban. Is there any? Big ideological difference between them, as it just happens to be one lot's in Pakistan and one lot's in Afghanistan. Well, the original
4: name of Taliban meant student. Yes. And it was students who were sent to madrassas in Pakistan, Pakistan. originally, because there weren't any madrasas operating in, in uh, Afghanistan to begin with, because the Russians were running it, and they'd have soon wiped out any madrassas. So, in effect, it's the same person. It's, it's an ideology... Student ideology, rather than, than necessarily a national thing. The Islamist fundamentalist.
3: I mean, the, the commonality is, is that so they're all Pashtuns, and it's the Pashtun community. And the border between it, um, between Afghanistan and Pakistan, is a very artificial one. Uh, Pashtun community, um, much of which is very conservative, and then of course are the fund- fundamentalist elements that um, are, have um, taken nest within it. Uh,
2: Julian. Um, <laughs> We, we talk in grand strategic terms all the time, you know, we're we winning this war, we're we not winning the war, can it be won, and is it part of the civilian thing that they've got to take on, part mm. of the, the greater role? I was very heartened this week, buried, buried, buried down in about three lines, in a good newspaper as well, should there be such thing, <laughs> um, was the 40 Commando have opened up their new police training camp in, in Afghanistan. Um, and one of the guys said, we need these people to man the checkpoints. That's a pretty good achievement,
4: isn't it, really? It is. I've just come back from the Army Staff College, listening to lectures about Afghanistan. It's quite clear, the Army and the Royal Marines of course, are quite clear that killing Taliban is not the aim. And people may think that's the aim, but it isn't. The aim is to win over the people. And the best way of doing this is to make certain that they are being looked after, controlled, whatever you like it, by their own tribespeople, their own people, not by a load of chaps who come from from England or or America. That's the whole game, and everybody understands this, uh, who's doing this. The problem, of course, is that there are not enough boots on the ground to make certain that the areas that you have taken over and you now want to turn back into a peaceful situation, are going to remain that way, necessarily. This is, I think, their main problem.
2: Yeah, and the other part of it is that just like Iraq, uh, the training and the uh,
4: professionalism of the police is the hardest part to achieve. It is, because the, the, the army, the Afghan National Army, is doing quite well, in fact. And they're now sort of almost laughing and saying, are you the 5th Battalion to come along and mentor us? Uh, you know, no, we now know, in other words, understated, mm. we now know a bit more about it than you do, mm. which is good, this is a- excellent. The police have always been very corrupt and have never been in the same league as the army. So this is a very difficult thing to do, but it's something that's got to be done.
2: I remember us talking about this last year, saying that what people forget in this country is that if you're a policeman in Afghanistan, chances are you're going home at night, and therefore you're terribly vulnerable.
4: Absolutely, yeah.
3: One one of the problems is that um, uh, soldiers are not necessarily the best people to train police. There is a very specific police culture, uh, and it, of course, differs depending on where you are. But um, this has been a problem. It's a problem with Iraq, with Americans trying to train uh, train Iraqi police, that they're not necessarily the best people. I'm not saying that the Royal Marines aren't probably as good in inverted commas soldiers as any for training police, but it it is an issue. Uh, The... Pakistani, uh, CGS was mentioning how they're having to train Pakistani police in the SWAT region. Um, and it's not the best, they're not the best people to train police. But you can't get police out of Western countries and they, because they've got their jobs at home. They're not designed for expeditionary training operations as armies um, and and, and needs. the security I think, yeah. situation. I mean,
4: the intermediate thing, and I quite agree with what Michael says, you actually want policemen to do it, but there is an intermediate stage. You can use Royal Marines Police and, and Royal Military Police, who yeah. are police-trained and understand yeah. things like the rules of evidence and how you <coughs> how you arrest people and all that sort of thing, which is, is sort of halfway yeah. towards yeah. doing yeah. it. Yeah. Yes, it's yeah.
3: minimum of use, rule of law. But um, also, of course, what you're trying to train is pretty gutsy, punchy police, the gendarmerie type of police, and that is obviously much nearer to military, military who are used to operating in constrained ways in rule-of-law operations. It's
2: far removed from the aloe sort of <coughs> sort of concept that we have of yes. what sort of policeman you're trying to uh, change. Let's go to the United States, um, in fact, to Cedar City, where Michael Stathis is the professor of international politics at the University of Southern Utah. Michael, um, all these stories that are coming from Pakistan, and if you heard it earlier about uh, the intelligence uh, services, Pakistan intelligence services apparently mentoring Taliban um, and stuff that's coming from Afghanistan, it must be the ammunition for those who would say Afghanistan is an unwinnable conflict. Why don't we just get out, Mr. President?
1: There, especially at this time, is uh, enormous public sympathy for uh, for that kind of an attitude. And uh, both uh, the White House uh, and the Pentagon are doing their best to uh, give some encouragement to the American people and build a believable case that, uh, one, uh, there are positive things going on, two, this is winnable, and three, uh, it's not going to be an, uh, an unending uh, situation, that there is uh, light at the end of the tunnel, uh, to use an old Vietnam uh, analogy. Um, this is why uh, the uh, presentation uh, by General Petraeus uh, before members of Congress this week was uh, uh, really so important, even though uh, more or less overshadowed by uh, the... Uh, the Gulf of Mexico oil spill. Nevertheless, um, uh, Petraeus uh, gave an interesting uh, presentation, uh, although it might uh, have been described as, shall we uh, say, tongue-in-cheek faint praise uh, for uh, what what, what is going on. He had a difficult time health-wise, but he came back and actually not only praised Obama's uh, efforts uh, currently in Afghanistan, um, but actually suggested that uh, um, uh, things may be ahead of uh, the time schedule uh, originally uh, uh, put forth. And, of course, uh, that, uh, that uh, timeline um, uh, uh, has very, very uh, significant uh, suggestions of a pullout uh, uh, late in the summer of next year. Uh, whether that will happen, of course, uh, is, is, is unknown.
2: Yeah. Michael, I mean, for, th- for those people who sort of missed uh, the general's little health problem, I mean, he collapsed when giving evidence to the Senate. It was the Senate, I think, on setbacks in the Afghan campaign. And he said it was dehydration. Um, and, and then he was back in and firing on all four. Um, it is that thing that becomes so symbolic, doesn't it? That sort of glitch in the presentation.
1: I, it, it, it is ironic that it took place for whatever reason, and it might have been dehydration, uh, could have been the heat and the humidity. Who knows? But um, uh, it, it's the kind of thing that uh, uh, puts writing on the wall. It's, it's not a good omen, uh, you know, for uh, uh, regardless of what what he had to say. And um, I, I think a lot of people, a lot of Americans, looking at that, come away with that image, and it's an unsettling image rather than the positive me- message that, uh, that he put forth, and that's not a good thing.
2: Yeah. I was looking at some of the numbers this week, and popularity numbers, and it tends to show that President Obama um, has a difficulty in fighting three wars, Afghanistan, Iraq, still there, and the biggest oil slick in American history, and it is a war there as well, isn't it?
1: Oh, I think so. Uh, on, on, of course, a different level, but uh, uh, very much so. This has been uh, an incredibly uh, uh, a bad time for uh, the, the president. And uh, given that, um, uh, his presentation uh, two nights ago on national television, uh, quite frankly, fell a little flat. It was not one of his better uh, presentations, and he's very well known for uh, being able to uh, uh, put forth as a significant orator. But um, uh, it it was not one of his better efforts, and, uh, of course, it was uh, meant to set up uh, a a very important meeting with uh, uh, British Petroleum uh, officials uh, uh, yesterday. The good news, uh, if there is some, is that uh, the meeting with uh, the BP officials yesterday probably went much better than a lot of people uh, thought it would, and uh, uh, even some Republicans are giving uh, uh, some recognition to uh, uh, the president as, as coming through. Uh, amazing what the promise of uh, a $20 billion uh, escrow account uh, will, will do uh, for, uh, for attitudes. But um, uh, most accounts are suggesting that, uh, at least on paper yesterday, the president came away with promises from BP, uh, basically fulfilling everything that he wanted to get from them uh, in terms of uh, accountability and uh, that's about as good a piece of news as the President has had in a very, very long time. Certainly, a better situation than BP officials are going through, even as we speak, especially Tony Howard uh, as they are giving uh, testimony before a congressional panel uh, today.
2: Yeah, I hope they have plenty of uh, bottled water. Isn't uh, Just the <laughs> final point on this, um, the President arrived and uh, the biggest problem in his intray was not a possible leak in the Gulf. The biggest problem was Afghanistan. It is still the biggest problem, and it's the one that he will take into the uh, midterms in uh, this coming autumn, November, and it's the, probably the one that he will take with him around his neck when it goes for a second term.
1: Oh, I think it definitely is, and... Uh... It is why the comment by Petraeus uh, that things are ahead of schedule was uh, so vitally important. Uh, th- uh, this week. Uh, now, whether it holds true, of course, we don't know. But uh, uh, three major things uh, I-, I think Obama and the Democratic Party have to hope will start to uh, uh, show some sense of uh, finality. One, of course, is Iraq. Uh, and the hope is that uh, come uh, uh, come September that uh, there is clear evidence that uh, 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 people are coming out of Iraq. Uh, Iraq, that that is uh, more or less a subtle situation. Two, uh, that uh, uh, by that time uh, uh, that the uh, oil leak uh, is being contained, that the that the cleanup uh, is, is proceeding, and I, I think uh, maybe more importantly that compensation um uh, 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 is starting to work uh, down in the Gulf area, and uh, people are happy about uh, the compensation. And, of course, three, and it's, it's a major number three, uh, the future of, uh, of Afghanistan. And uh, I, for one, uh, uh, look at the uh, uh, comments of Petraeus and the hopes of Obama with a great deal of skepticism. Uh, I just don't know.
2: Michael Stathis, I thought I'd never hear you say that. (laughs) (laughs) Professor, thanks very much. Talk to you soon. Bye now. Bye now. Now,
0: listen. I think. Can I say a couple of words emerge from this? (laughs) Firstly, it is that the thing about a surge, as it was in Iraq, is that more people get killed in the short term, but fewer people get killed in the long term, or the medium term at least. So you can make it appear that things have stabilised and are peaceful. And that could be quite a good scenario f- for sort of getting out. This, is, this was the Petraeus strategy in Iraq. It worked very well, actually, in but 2008.
2: This ain't, this ain't Iraq we're talking about. It's quite different no, place.
0: Well, no, but actually the same kind of thing of dominating, dominating the area, protecting the people or trying to, op- operating in much larger numbers. The second point is this. Petraeus is a very active person. He runs a lot. And at his age, he shouldn't. He should be more careful. We have just lost one of the finest officers in the Royal Air Force. Mm. Air Chief Marshal Chris Moran, who was uh, who was a uh, very very, next, yeah. who could, he would have been the next chief of the Air Staff, an officer he was a friend of mine, a, a charismatic officer, a huge loss to the country, and he was running and he overstressed it. Running in a triathlon a triathlon when you're 52 is something you should do with great care, and I th- and I think Petraeus should realise that as well. Grove, I have to tell everybody, is not the sort of person to even consider it. Michael, absolutely, Popper. that's why I
3: don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm following what, on from what Eric says, I, the. Uh, The problem in Afghanistan is is this one of that the insurgency is what has been called a cumulative type campaign, lots of different events all together Mm. having an effect. And it's the statistics that matter. What you have to do in the counterinsurgency, both to show your progress, um, to the other side and also to convince the support of your populations is to turn it into something that's sequential that you um, move from one stage to another to another to a eventual conclusion and Moshtarak was the first of that sequence in the surge everyone is expecting Kandahar when's it going to happen Kandahar has been delayed so if we're looking to the end of the summer for this big review as to where we are with the which is what um, Obama and Gates have both said um, with a view to um, reducing numbers etc from the perceptions of the publics where behind the curve because Kandahar hasn't yet happened however Kandahar is going to be dealt with it's not I think the great siege that everyone was expecting uh,
2: but then I I was talking to somebody on the Senate Armed Services Committee and I said uh, are you bothered about Kandahar, because uh, General Stanley McChrystal said, well, you know, it's a bit of a delay. And he said, we don't mind uh, if it's a delay, as long as we understand, because nobody here understands what we're trying to do there anyway. And he said that not cynically. (coughs) And he said, how can we understand what we're trying to do? Because everything is trying to keep pace. And we're coming back uh, Julian, to the idea, talking about the civilian, needing civilian police, but the training that 40 Commando, for example, are doing when when, when they're not out. Um, he said, we, we, we need the civilians to keep up with us, and we don't believe they can do it. It's too big a problem. So he was far more interested in the September elections in Afghanistan than he is in, in, in Kandahar. You see, Kandahar's not going to go away. And, this, and that's the, the problem for the military, isn't it? Expectation.
4: Yes, expectation. And, and also having targets, which I think are very... You know, I don't mean numerical mm, targets, but, but data. Which I think is a very dangerous thing to have, because things don't go that way. This is the trouble. There's much more unexpected in a situation like this, than people um, will think or, or understand and we've always had this. I mean, you
2: yeah. had, didn't you have it in eighty two in south? Yeah. You, you always, they want you to get on with it, there's always,
4: it, they? want you to get on with it, and, and there are many things that will stop you from getting on with it, and, <laughs> and it's far more... I mean, Afghanistan is far more complicated than 1982,
2: <laughs> I would yes, say. Yeah. Tell me, just one other thing, um, Eric. It's, it's, a, it's a sort of footnote. we have talking about Pakistan. Um, the United States um, uh, Aid Agency in Mercy Corps is pulling out of two of southern Pakistan provinces for security reasons. 50 offices. Well, that's too dangerous. This, and
0: Sin are being closed. This is the problem. We talk a lot about the comprehensive approach of the military and the NGOs operating together. But the problem is, as soon as it gets in any way rough, the NGOs can't operate because it, it's, it's too dangerous. And it's one, of the fu- it's one of the fundamental flaws, really, in the whole idea of a comprehensive approach to dealing with insurgencies. It's yeah. very, very difficult, very, very
2: difficult. Yeah, and you can't, it doesn't matter who you are. Do you see, Michael uh, Codner that, for example, in Pakistan, they've, they've actually sort of banned demos in Karachi. The idea is to keep the bombers out. This doesn't keep bombers out, does it? I mean, the bombers don't need more than a market to do their work.
3: Absolutely, and, um, and it gives the wider impression of suppressing, suppressing um, democracy, popular expression and all of the other things that work against Pakistan in the, in the wider international community.
2: Okay, look, well, the time is 37 gosh, we're late, uh, uh, 37 minutes after the hour. Uh, you're listening to Rep on BFPS Radio 2 with me, Christopher Lee, still with me, um, Eric Grove, Gillian Thompson and Michael Cotner. If you've just joined us, you can catch the whole programme simply by going into bfbs.com forward slash SITREP and clicking on Listen Again. Can I just um, ask you um, about something which the uh, the uh, government's announced today? Um, two projects have been um, uh, re-looked at, if you like, uh, today, and it's part of the cuts in spending. Um, there's the successor to deterrent extensions, to concept phase, uh, which is, in other words, this is trite, isn't Mm -hmm. it, it, Eric? And they're looking at the sort of value for money progress. Why? Why?
0: Well, the the political reason is that the Liberal Democrats uh, were very much against it during the election, and they said they wanted an alternative nuclear system. And the government is, uh, and and the coalition is therefore taking a look at the future of Trident. I suspect what they're looking at is: can the Trident system run on the current submarines? Run on longer than the last white paper said? So these extensions that could go now move to um, long lead items? They or? could move to the right. The trouble is when programmes move to the right they cost more in the long term and one of the things which we were supposing to try to get out of was this idea of moving things to the right just as a way of stopping short term expenditure but actually Michael. it costs more in the long term.
3: Obviously, yes, the, uh, the concept phase, just to point out what that means technically, it's the, it's the phase in the programme to replace the submarines and yeah. everything else um, where all the thought goes into the various options to downsize them, to one option that will be taken through to the assessment phase, and by delaying the concept phase, you actually delay commitment of the largest amount of funds, which doesn't happen 66 till, after, uh, till after the, the, um, the uh, assessment phase. But what it does mean is that the um, development and manufacture phase will slip right as a result, which means that this could push the beginning of actually building the submarines out of this government's term into mm. the next one, which is a convenience for the Conservatives, albeit pressed upon them by their coalition party. Yes. They rather
0: I hope they're going to be there anyway, well, aren't they? I mean, it, it might do that. I, mean, I must admit, right from the start, I was a little bit worried about the idea that our SSBNs couldn't run, run on as long as the Americans could. Right. And I was convinced by people I trusted, and the House of Commons Defence Committee, having asked the question slightly at my behest, well, I, I was one of the people trying to get them to ask the question, in my evidence, saying, ask the question, do the sub, can our submarines last as long as the Americans, or getting on to the same time? I was convinced at the time that the answer was no. It appears it might be well, possibly. Yeah. So the other thing which they're looking at again is the, the
2: project for, Michael, for the new search and rescue helicopters. It's quite a big project, actually, isn't it, even getting somebody else to run the services. Um, you start to putting that out. Um, uh, of the program, frankly, nobody 's going to mind because they say that we can do this probably commercially
3: uh, There are some aspects you might be able to do commercially. you certainly can 't deliver the the whole capability no but you probably be doing it heli- with... H- because, uh, if we 're talking specifically um, uh, um, for um, search and rescue around the u k that 's one thing yeah. that you need search and rescue uh, when you 're actually on. Forward operations overseas and things and that's not something you can usually outsource. But
0: this is a much larger issue in the sense the Coast Guard was taking over the entire search and rescue task and a new generation of search and rescue helicopters was going to be purchased and one wonders uh, how far this was to allow the Coast Guard to actually have their own helicopters. I mean... The, they have their own as well. Well, the oh, well, the, the, the RN helicopters are getting long in the tooth. The RAF helicopters are getting long in the tooth. The Coast Guard helicopters are not quite so much. But this could be an area where perhaps a new generation of helicopters isn't quite so necessary.
4: And there are two things. One is, that Michael has raised, that when you're launching aircraft from a carrier in the Indian Ocean, you need guys trained in the search and rescue. And you're not yes. going to get some guy, you know, who's yeah. actually going home every night to do that. Secondly, I think, actually, this is part of the... It probably comes into uh, another program later or whenever. It's all part of looking at how we defend our shores. And I personally would like to see the Coast Guard being sucked in to become part of the Navy. As and the American. Make, as the, well, the Americans have a Coast Guard service, but I yes. really would like to.
0: It's all part of the whole tapestry of maritime operations. The Coast Guard is becoming. I think the Coast Guard is looking rather jealously at the American Coast Guard, thinking we ought to be like that too. And I'm not sure that's a very good no, idea. I agree, I Michael, yes, Michael, I agree Michael. with
3: you. Uh, I was having a discussion with an expert friend in this field and there is a completely different model and that is when you look at the Royal Fleet Auxiliary which applies mm-hmm. the supply for the Navy which is, which is, um, which is a merchant service, it's mm-hmm. not military. Um, there is a model where you could combine uh, the Royal Fleet Auxiliary with the Hydrographic Service and the Coast Guard Service and this would be a, a non-military organisation um, more along merchant lines that doesn't cover the helicopter issue directly. You can could bring related, a lot of these in, but We're talking about a completely different model, which could be very, very effective, particularly given the tradition of the Royal Fleet Auxiliary, which is exemplary as um, civilian organisations go in delivering value for money in a way that even the Royal Navy finds it difficult to
2: do. It's odd, isn't it, in in, in some ways? Do you remember when we had the announcement they were going to um, get rid of some of the small craft, like mine hunters, etc., and then thinking the next phase is when you come away from Afghanistan you then have to start thinking, right, we have to defend our shores much closer. And what's best to defend your shores in the first instance than a whole load of small craft?
3: Mm-hmm. And we yeah. have a legacy in that particular area of considerable expertise internationally, and we are yeah. the, some of the best. Yeah. There are a large
0: but number of P2000 craft in the hands of the University of Royal Naval Units which
3: could be used for other purposes
0: if they wanted
2: to. Most of them are used for other purposes as well. Well, I know they are. The only are very effective. OK, and listen, I'm going to talk about Bloody Sunday. Almost everybody's had their say about the Bloody Sunday report. Yeah. I read it, and I was struck by the evidence that hasn't been highlighted that much. You know, we're pointing at the soldiers, but well, what about the people who had policy and ultimate command, the politicians? Um, anybody? Uh, Eric, are these the ones that sort of...
0: not quite got away with it, but have got away with it? Well, up to a point. I mean, the whole, the whole the sort of policy context was rather heavy-handed aid to civil power, a bit based perhaps on what had happened in previous years in the, in, in the Middle East, in Aden, for example, and that was totally wrong. However, I must insist that... The, the politicians and the high higher commanders probably expected the soldiers to act in a professional manner, uh, which means... Well, I was struck by not firing, little. Not firing yeah. at people or not firing well, at hang them. On. <laughs> let's,
2: let's ignore that bit because that's been gone over. But, Michael Codner, I was struck very much in the evidence that I sat through, but also the evidence that I read, uh, how much a lot of these guys, the politicians, the senior civil servants... Seem to get away with by saying, oh, it's a long time ago, you know. I've done all sorts of great things since then. Um, but yes, I... W- am Ted Heath, late Ted Heath. Yes, I was Prime Minister, but I co- wouldn't be expected to know anything. And I can't remember what happened afterwards. When you consider it changed, mm. the Definitely.
3: way Ireland went. But it was also a watershed in other ways, and that is what you have before... Bloody Sunday or well before um, the, mm. r- the rebirth of the Troubles is you have um, a pattern of, of of operations generally abroad as uh, oh. Eric's indicated where some quite brutal actions were taken in support of civil power when we're talking about Kenya, K- as it was called then, uh, Malera or whatever um, when you actually bring all this home uh, in the latter part of the 20th century in support of in aid of civil power, in support of the police, into a very different regime, uh, which is very much domestic at home. Um, and uh, and uh, you have a whole a political system, a whole political culture, and indeed a military that has to switch from one to the other. Uh, General Julian will be much better qualified to talk on this subject than I. And I, think,
4: I think it, is, it was a, a watershed, when it was, but it was a part of a watershed, if, if you can have part of a watershed. The the IRA recognised very early on when the British Army went into Northern Ireland that because they were seen to be protecting the Catholics against the Protestants, they had lost the battle, the IRA had. They were putting up things on on walls saying IRA equals I ran away. Mm -hmm. And, And they had to somehow get back in control. And the way they did it, which was quite crafty, was to generate problems that put the British Army into a bad light which meant Absolutely. that the population swung their allegiance from giving them tea to kicking them in the fork when they came round to see them. And this was part of it. This this was part of it. And and the problem was that, that it was suckered into taking actions that needn't have been taken here in the Bogside. What is also true, though... And, and I must talk to someone like Michael Rose about it, who was there, that there was firing going on, I know not by the people who, who were shot. Mm. So you have an atmosphere where there are bullets flying around, people are not quite sure where they're coming from, everyone is hyped up, orders are disobeyed, soldiers are sent where they were told not to be sent, and you have an absolute sucker trap for the army, and the IRA are laughing all the way. This yeah. is the
2: problem. Can I just come back to this point, and I... Um, I think we've got uh, Richard Dalton Taylor, the uh, defence and security um, uh, editor at the Guardians on the the line at the moment. Are you there, Richard? I am, yes. Yeah, can I just bring you to this? And then I want to talk about theatre. I looked at some of the uh, evidence, including the, the annex on, for example, cabinet meetings and briefing papers... Before Bloody Sunday that led up to Bloody Sunday, everything from number 10 to the MOD. And I think there are some there's some evidence to suggest that all these guys, the defence secretary, the defence minister, the permanent Secretaries, etc. And even the late Ted Heath himself seem to have gone off lightly in uh, in, in this inquiry.
6: Well, I think certainly uh, Saville has skirted over what was happening in London, what was talked about in London, and also between Heath and Faulkner, William Faulkner, the Prime Minister of Northern Ireland at the time. And it was clear from a lot of the evidence, actually, you don't have to necessarily go back to the history, but the evidence that Saville himself heard about the dilemma uh, of the, 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 the British politi- senior politicians and Northern Ireland politicians felt. Because on the one hand, as it's been said, you get the concern about... Uh, uh, what uh, the, the um, Republicans uh, are, are up to. You have divisions over, including divisions within the army, actually, over uh, internment and what that would lead to. At the same time, the need to keep on the side with the unionists, and this produced uh, a really unclear and confused atmosphere and, and, and attitude at the top Um which Heath himself was partly responsible for, I think, and he got off lightly, certainly, in my view.
2: Right. Let's talk about plays. Let's talk about your play, On um, Bloody Sunday, which I first saw at the Tricycle Theatre. Those people who don't know the Tricycle Theatre, it's in uh, Kilburn. And I saw it, Richard, was it 2005? Oh,
6: yes, that's right, I think.
2: That's right, yeah. and It well, obviously Derry
6: went to the Dublin Theatre Festival, actually.
2: It did, didn't it? Yes. Anyway. yes. Um, what I'm... What I, what struck me at the time about it, because I mean the whole thing was still going on, yeah. that you could not come to any conclusion in that play, yeah. because there was no conclusion yet. Yeah. It was a strange experience. Now we've we've had to put it sort of crudely the, the final act. Um, would you change, or is there something yet to be answered that would satisfy you as the dramatist?
6: I don't think so, because um, I don't know about other inquiries too, like the first and one into the death of Stephen Lawrence, and it's the witnesses and the cross-questioning which helps to produce the drama, and indeed I think the extension of journalism really, um, because you've got um, thousands of words which normally are on a running story, if you like, an inquiry, I mean, or rather than the event itself, the inquiry into the event, which goes on, well, heaven knows, in Several's case, many years, and As a journalist, you get um, maybe 400 words one day, maybe 1,000 one weekend, and maybe a few hundreds the next weekend, as witnesses give evidence. But to get the whole picture, I think, clearly, without sounding too arrogant about it, it's much easier for any sort of person, really, writing for the theatre with bums on seats and so on, people listening to something for two hours and more, to get the picture of the evidence, the detail, which is really, really important. And people said, I think, that uh, my... um, Extracts from the several hearings was actually quite fair because you couldn 't ignore obviously you've got the the, the 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 evidence the very dramatic evidence of the families of the victims and you've got quite dramatic evidence from uh, para the paras and also the senior officers, whether divisions of course, it also helps to make a drama and the character of say someone like Sir General Ford, head of land forces then and you get uh, the brigadier who's caught in the middle between Wilford, the commander of the one para.
2: This is Pat Ford, McClellan, wasn't it? Who,
6: whose orders were disobeyed. So you've got that. That is drama itself.
2: Yeah. You see, I've, I've been thinking that... I mean, I, I see these inquiries as almost set-piece dramas. I mean, there is, they are theatres, as you as, as you sit and watch. Because I remember going to Chilcot and seeing um, yeah. seeing some of the uh, giving evidence at the Iraq inquiry. And you looked at their faces as much as you could sitting there... Um and you saw all the expressions that you would see from a Suchet or or any other actor um almost playing the part it was coming from the gut that's important isn't it
6: it it is important and if i mean actors are, are playing not impersonating but they're playing these real people who who gave evidence and um when someone's in the witness box they they they're, 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 they're in a quite tense situation i mean they want to tell the truth, they swear the oath. Most of them, and um, they—they—they uh, they, are—they're they are in the spotlight, um, whether it's in the chill rather sort a more relaxed, sitting down on a sofa kind of um, mm. atmosphere. It doesn't make it less effective, I have to say, mm. uh, or, or in, in, a, in a kind of in a tribunal, which is more like a trial. Um, and you got—I mean, it's astonishing. I mean, Tony, me when to stop? Because there's so many <laughs> examples of which, which no one's going to read the full five thousand pages, I suppose. Of, Savilled, anyhow, have well, got one soldier, for example, who actually went on insisting that he fired twelve shots of his self loving rifles in the same little tiny hole in a frosted window, and that all those twelve shots went through the same small hole yeah. from from hundred, you know many yards away. And he, and he's, and when he asked if he made that story up said, if I wanted to make a story up, I'd make up a better story than that. There was a kind of sneer, really, yes. I'm afraid, in some of the soldiers who were rehearsed very much by the MOD, I have to say, and I don't necessarily, quite understandable, yeah. and they rehearsed and they, and they gave this chorus of, you know, I can't remember, I can't remember.
2: Well, after all, Ted Heath was rehearsed. Tell me, there's, there's yeah. some other side of this. Um, I mean, I get the idea that analysis and discussion can't, I mean, what we're doing can't do what a play can do. And there are some wonderful examples of, the, of situations which are impenetrable. Until you get to the theatre, I, mean, I was thinking uh, plays like *Journey's End*, that final episode of *Blackadder*. Oh, what a lovely Well, they, They're the impressions that one is left with of of, of a huge, huge and complicated uh, situation.
6: Yeah, the um, difference is that when I don't make out the words, I mean the words are spoken by someone have been spoken by someone else. I sort edit it down, really. Um, it tastes sort of much, more, rather more creative, let's put it that way, when you get black out at the journey's end and so on. Mm. But the point is that I think that theatre is a very effective medium, actually, and I'm talking as a journalist where you know you do not know where your 500 words or the 1,000 words tomorrow, uh, whether the reader is ignoring uh, your story on that page or coughing over his cornflakes or whatever, or actually taking it in and being quite interested. And, and, uh, and as I say, in the, in the theatre where, where you can actually explain much more over time, I. a few hours, um, what actually happened and, and if you're fair and, and therefore credible and you're therefore more appreciated than if it's just sort of lining up um, you know soldiers rather like in a musical which wouldn't do any good at all uh, you're actually trying to clarify and explain the thing that's so I hope not too portentous but that's why for me the theatre can be um, quite exhilarating really or uh, and refreshing uh, uh, as a journalist
2: Richard Norton Taylor, thank you very much indeed. Um, I'm not sure, I think you can still download or listen again Richard Norton Taylor's play uh, that was on Radio 4 last weekend, which is the Tricycle Theatre's production of Bloody Sunday. Now, uh, we've got about four or five minutes left. I was just thinking, the theatre of of what goes on in just one week, we've got um, uh, things like NATO... NATO ministers gathering to talk about Montenegro and welcome Montenegro, and they want eventually to come into NATO. Uh, This is, Michael, I mean, this is theatre in the round, isn't it?
3: Well, well it is, and um, I I have some fairly close experience in this because last um, autumn I was in Bosnia-Herzegovina in in Sarajevo at the request of the... um, Minister for Defence, to talk about their defence review and uh, the way that defence review can help them get into NATO. Um, um, The argument being get into NATO first and then you get into the European Union and then you can draw all the benefits of being a reasonable, settled European small country and we produced papers on that subject and and, um, held a very effective review. But the irony was that here is this country, it's come so far since the war, um, uh, it still has big problems with the different communities, particularly the Serb community. But it, when you go to Sarajevo, it's remarkable what you find there when you get there, and it's not. And Sarajevo was then delayed in their progress in getting into NATO which should have started in December but Montenegro had slipped in and when you actually look at Montenegro um, and, it's, uh, and, and the culture of the place where it gets funding from Russians to build casinos and things, it's not the sort of model West European country that Bosnia has given on more its way to. They view. used to
2: put things like this on the Whitehall Theatre, didn't they? But at least it's more united than Bosnia though. I mean, yeah. it, is, it
3: is a sort of
0: homogenous Stay, for the yes. time being. For Can time I talk being, uh, yes. just,
2: just quickly? It's something else that struck me this week. Um, the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, Julian, opened uh, a fabulous looking hospital. It's going to take over for the services uh, for, for the uh, people that have been maimed, wounded, uh, the job that Selly Oak has tried to do. Fabulous uh, conditions. Somehow it's, it's important, this, that we don't forget the afterlife of somebody coming back minus a leg or something.
4: It's, it's very important. And, of course, Seliac started with a bad name years ago, uh, and it, they didn't get it right. This is replacing it, and, and I've seen pictures of it and, and had a talk about it from the Chaps to operator, and it's going to be a very fine uh, facility indeed. And, of course, from there they go on to uh, Hedley Court for mm. rehabilitation, and this goes on for years uh, the rehabilitation and, and has to necessarily because of these te- dreadful injuries that a lot of these chaps are having from IEDs.
2: Yeah, and consequently, I mean, it goes on for the rest of their lives. Yes, it does.
4: I mean, yes. I was talking to a young parrot the other day who'd lost both legs and one arm and, and and is now hoping to go back. He's now working in a store in the parachute training thing and he's, he's training as a sniper and he hopes to go back to Afghanistan because he yeah. says he can shoot with one hand.
3: Yeah. On that, on that subject, Julian, we had a most remarkable young... Um, um, black um, Royal Marine speaking at our institute yesterday, Ben, McMean, ben McBean. Ben um on he lost an arm and a leg on his experience um, with the view to improving the welfare sector. But the important point about um, Queen Elizabeth, of course, it is um, the fusion of a national health hospital with um, the armed forces of services medical. Um, Aren't c- you people doing
2: something about this tomorrow at the? We the- did. Or was it last week? It was yesterday. It was yesterday. I missed it.
3: But it, it, it is yeah. hopefully the proper conclusion from a, a sequence that goes back to a pretty shambolic start in the late uh, 1990s when yeah, they yeah. started this process yeah. quick, and it wasn't well
2: thought through. A quick one. We've got 15 seconds. Uh, BBC can't seem to get talks about injuries when I would talk about wounds. Why is that?
4: Well, because injuries sound more friendly. I, I get very angry about it. A guy gets wounded, he doesn't get injured. Yeah. Yeah. Yes.
2: And any more money on uh, Admiral Stanhope becoming the next C- CDS? Can, I just, make on, one naval po- person, can I just make
3: one point there? there are two very fine generals. We've, the three of us around here all have naval backgrounds of one sort and another. I think we we'll to point out there is David Richards and yes, there is Nick who is Horton, who, very, who are a very good candidates. Exactly. Five
2: are on the nose on the lot of them. That's exactly. it for this week. My <laughs> thanks to Michael Codner, Eric Grove and Julian Thompson. Um, next week, we look at the future of all three services in the SITREP special on the Strategic Defence Review. I'm Christopher Lee. Mary? Mary's in the heart.
1: SITREP with Christopher Lee.